0: Well, thank you very much, Ben, for your welcome the invitation, even behind the welcome. It's good to be here. Great to see you all. Uh, by the way, is there anyone who cannot hear me? Um, and if you, I trust that you can work with my perhaps strange accent. It's the only one I've got. You know, one of the... Th- Things I love about the Bible is its earthy realism. It understands the world we live in the good, the bad, the grief, and the joys. It also understands how we feel about life's injustices, especially when we see people who mock the idea of God enjoying their success. Nothing ever seems to go wrong for them. If God is truly good and all-powerful, why doesn't he do something? Let me say, true faith is always going to have questions. In fact, faith that refuses to ask questions is one that leaves itself open to the contempt of the skeptic. True faith will always want to address tough questions and be willing to experience doubts when they arise now it's important to note that to have doubts is not to lack faith doubts are not the opposite of faith doubt and unbelief are two very different things doubt in the end is something only a believer can truly experience you can only doubt what you believe So with those thoughts in mind, come with me to Psalm 73. It's a reflection written by a man who experienced doubt. He came within a hair's breadth of abandoning his faith in God. Just have a look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Yet by the end of the psalm, he tells us that he felt closer to God than ever before. In verse 28 we read, But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. As the psalm unfolds, we learn of his spiritual story, how he progressed from doubt to a surer trust in God. And one of the songwriter's big questions is framed by a a theological principle that he expresses in verse 1. God is good to the pure in heart, or God is good to the upright. Why is it, he's asking, that many who are godless find life easy while I suffer? His bitterness flows from verse 3 right through verse 11. It's as though he is saying, come on, let's face it. Whatever we might hear or say when we go to church, such as the creed that we've just said, it's the self-centered and the proud, the deceitful and ruthless people who seem to succeed in life. They enjoy good health, good looks, great wealth. Nothing seems to bring them down. No one seems to be able to call them to account. They even get rewarded for their crimes with popularity. God is irrelevant. They mock. Justice is the issue that troubles the poet. Look at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in his innocence. For all day long I have been plagued, and am punished every morning. The Bible regularly says that God is good to his people, people who strive to live his way. But again and again, as the psalm writer looked around, he sees the success of the godless. And we understand what he means. We hear of the appalling cases of child abuse. Many of them remain unresolved. Perpetrators walk free. We read of corporate leaders who have taken millions for themselves and have no sense of responsibility to employees or shareholders who, on occasion, have lost all their assets. We read about dictators who have, having cruelly exploited their people, living and feasting in the luxury of their palatial homes. It's an unjust world, the psalm writer is saying. But when we think about it, injustice often really becomes an issue for us only when it personally touches us. And that's what's happening here in the psalm. In those times, we ask, God, why me? And it's here, those first-person singular pronouns, what I call the perpendicular pronouns, the I of the psalm that give us and the psalm writer away. Just have a look at verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So there we are. We have in the opening segment of the psalm, The psalm writer's concern. Concerns about injustice and his own suffering. causing to him to have doubts about his faith. So secondly, what becomes the solution for his doubts? Just look at verse 15. If I had said I will walk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Now just look at those words again. It was wearisome to me until I went to the sanctuary of God. Or as we would say, until I went to church. Why was going to the sanctuary of God so significant? Why is coming to church today so helpful? Well, the Old Testament sanctuary at its best, good churches today, and sadly there are many that are not, but good churches today are places where God's Word is believed to be God's authoritative, unique, written self-revelation. It's read and it's taught in the sanctuary of old at its best and in churches today. And you see what happens when we come under God's revelation we begin to put God at the center of our vision. Life is not just about little me. Life becomes our understanding of ourselves in the context of our understanding of God. Context of our understanding of life around us in terms of our understanding of God. You know, we human beings are like the moon. We live on borrowed light. It's not until we turn our face towards God, who is the only source of true light, as we read in that gospel reading this morning from John chapter 1, that we see the truth about life. So, as long as we put me at the centre of life, our vision of life is going to be distorted. Good churches can deliver us from our self-absorption. So when we look at this through the lens of the New Testament, we read in the Gospel of John, further on from the opening chapter, on in chapter 8 and verse 12, the words of Jesus, God's one and only eternal Son, who's come amongst us, as we learned in verse 14 of chapter 1. Jesus, in the course of his public ministry, said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the first step out of doubt is to turn away from the problem and focusing on the problem and catching a glimpse of God. Going to a church that believes and connects the dots of the Bible is a great way to start. Now, it's important we think about this. Glenn Scrivener, in his recent book, The Air We Breathe, writes of the immense reforming influence of Christianity that has had on the world. Yes, on the world. Especially on Western society. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, Christian ideas and values, including our sense of justice, are the air we breathe because of the influence of Christianity. Glenn Scrivener asks, if we are something that's been created out of nothing, in other words, if we just happen to exist, because of perhaps a big bang, and something's happened, we've come about. If that's all our existence is about, where do we get our sense of right and wrong? At one point, Scrivener draws from C.S. Lewis's illustration of a line, of a line. How do we know a line is crooked? Lewis asks unless we are aware of a line that is straight. In Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, my argument against God was was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how do I get the idea of just or unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of the straight. What was I comparing the universe to, Lewis says, when I called it unjust? At this point in his book, Scrivener is writing on the subject of child abuse. It is the goodness of Jesus that defines the evil of such abuse, he comments. To return to Psalm 73. When the psalm writer sat under God's word, he learned that we live in a moral universe where justice will prevail. Just have a look at the second part of verse 17 and 18. Then I perceived their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. You see what the psalm writers come to understand? Despite all the mess, the chaos, the injustice, all these things happening around us, yes, there is a God, and God has got a bigger plan. And we're only going to begin to learn about that if we get into the Bible. Justice will be done. Now, talk of an end time, which what the writer is talking about here, and judgment isn't popular at all these days. But the fact is, as far as the Bible is concerned, these things are dreadfully real. And if we think about it, if they weren't real, there'd be no hope for goodness in the world. It's only because the God who made the world intends to give his moral verdict on human history that we dare to believe that goodness matters. Without judgment, God and the world are reduced to moral indifference. To reckon that goodness and therefore justice are important, we have to believe that there is a future, that there is an end time. A time will come when we will stand before God. In fact, all men and women from throughout history will stand before the living God. Do you believe that? You said it in the Creed. Yes, Jesus himself predicted his death, and his resurrection, the fall of the city of Jerusalem, his death, his resurrection, and the fall of the city of Jerusalem back in 70 AD, those things occurred. And there's a fourth element to his prophetic word, I will return there will be a day of judgment when everyone will stand before me. Some will stand before him with great joy in their hearts because they've come to know him while there's been opportunity. Sadly, the many will not. So when the psalm writer went to church, He saw life and its meaning from God's perspective. Just look at verse 20. They are like a dream. These very successful people without God, people who mock God. When one awakes on awakening, you despise their phantoms. Have you ever had one of those nightmares where you wake up suddenly because you are sweating with anxiety? You switch on the light, And suddenly you laugh at your foolishness. It all seemed so real, but it wasn't. Once you wake up, you realize it was all an illusion. And that's how God sees the prosperity of the wicked. It's not real because it's not eternal. It doesn't last. One day we will wake and realize that all those material things that perhaps we longed for, chased after, will fade into the mist. Indeed, there's probably no more terrible judgment on godless men and women than the fact that one day God will ignore them forever. Jesus himself says it in a parable of the rich fool that he told, that we read about in Luke chapter 12 the parable concludes to the man who is consp- uh, with God's words to the man who was so consumed with self-interest and his material success you fool this night your soul is demanded of you you fool what chilling words to hear from the god of the universe What a terrifying nightmare it is to be despised by the living God, our Creator, our Redeemer. When the psalm writer went to church and put God at the centre of his vision, he was able to see just how precarious is the prosperity of the godless. It's not going to last. And as he reflected on these things, he came to his senses about himself. Just have a look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, and note that word embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast towards you. You know, part of our trouble is that once we get into morbid introspection, it very quickly becomes a vicious circle. We don't feel like listening to God's word. We don't feel like going to church. We'd rather wallow in self-pity and feed our resentment towards God. And so we lock ourselves in the dungeon of our thoughts and throw away the key. Our darkness grows deeper and deeper. Our disillusionment turns into despair. It's one reason it's so important to commit to reading God's Word day by day by day, and to commit to attending church Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. If we don't discipline ourselves in these two ways, reading the Word of God and attending the churches where God's Word is believed and taught, putting God at the centre of our lives, then when doubts arise, we would, not have the bigger pic- we would not have the bigger picture that God's Word provides. You know, as soon as we open our hearts to God's Word, we see ourselves as we really are. We see things about ourselves that we perhaps rather not see. Perhaps we see the sulkiness of our behaviour, the childishness of our resentment. We see how pathetic Our self-pity might be, I envy the arrogant. And we kick ourselves when we realize just how stupid it all is. The psalm writer discovered something else about himself. He learned that despite his doubts and foolish talk, there is still a child of God. God loved him. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you'll receive me into glory. There's a hint in the Old Testament that they knew about life beyond the grave. As long as we stay away from our Bibles, going to good churches, we can hide from these realities. We'll hear a subtle voice saying to us, well, you're not really one of God's people, are you? How can you be? Thinking this way you do about God, having all these doubts, to hear God's word in the company of others is a rich gift from God. It prompts us to see our doubts for what they are and opens our eyes to the meaning of our faith. Day by day, God holds us by the hand. Notice, He guides us with His counsel and He will bring us to glory. Do you really believe that deep in your heart? Well, you know, we today have a far greater assurance of this future reality because we live on the other side of the life and the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. His offer of forgiveness to all who are truly repentant, who turn to him. His offer of new life with God forever, and not empty promises. On the afternoon when Jesus was dying on a cross, On Calvary's Hill, one of the two men who were crucified with him called out to Jesus, Remember me when you come in your kingdom. To which the dying Jesus replied, Today you'll be with me in paradise. I can assure you, Jesus is saying, your dying is not going to be without hope. There'll be no hell. No delay for you. Today, you'll be with me. And Jesus' words that day ring down through the centuries. Every one of us who turns to him in repentance and genuine faith, every one of us who puts their hands in his hand. every one of us who puts our life in his hands, can be assured of life with him in all of its fullness and joy and glory forever. So let me ask, where are you going in your relationship with the living God, with the living Lord Jesus Christ? C.S. Lewis once put it this way, All your life, an unattainable ecstasy, has hovered just beyond your grasp and consciousness. The day is coming when you will wake to find, beyond all hope, that you have attained it, or else that it was within your reach and you've lost it forever.